This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. We had a, a sort of an unusual article about dealing with what the authors called incapacitated surrogates. Not just that they're unreasonable, but maybe that they're not competent. And I thought that was really pretty new and interesting. When you have a surrogate that you want to disqualify, not just because, as I said, they're disagreeable, but because the things that they're saying don't make any sense. Our guests today are editors of key healthcare ethics journals with an international readership. We are engaged in conversation with Greg Kebnick from the Hastings Center Report, Leslie LeBlanc from the Journal of Clinical Ethics, and Father Charles Bouchard from Healthcare Ethics USA. What are the issues in healthcare ethics that are impacting ethics committees, hospitals and health systems, public policy and patients over the past year? What issues do we expect to continue and emerge within this year? What are the trends our guests are seeing from their seat and from talking with authors and readers? And finally, would they have any recommended reading for our listeners? I'm Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. Well, to our guests today, I have a first question. Uh, Greg, Leslie, and Charlie, what do you most like about being the editor of your journal? I really enjoy the range of ideas. We we try to turn stuff in the light a little bit, and I like being exposed to stuff that I actually know very little bit about. And when then I, I begin working on that piece as an editor, I... I I see my task as being in a way to sort of get inside the head of the author and try and, and edit with a sense of the author's own perspective, substantively and also sort of uh, stylistically in mind to understand the author's voice and help the author say stuff that I may actually uh, not only not know very much about, but may even disagree with. And I find that challenging and kind of fun. Charlie, what about yourself at Healthcare Ethics USA? Yeah, I'd have to agree with Greg. I, I think the favorite thing uh, for me about working with Healthcare Ethics USA is working with the authors. You know, I get to kind of see how their minds work. And as Greg suggested, I also have to learn about every topic that comes up, many of which, you know, uh, I get submissions for things that I really know nothing about. So I got to be able to understand it well enough to assess the quality of the article. And Leslie at the Journal of Clinical Ethics. Yeah, our um, emphasis in our name is clinical. So I get to work many times with clinicians who may not be academics, if if that's an understood kind of difference. And so I enjoy working with people who are sort of uh, where the rubber hits the road, but maybe don't always have a lot of experience writing. And I think, too, I agree with Greg and Charlie that who knew there was so much stuff that I knew nothing about? <laughs> and um, also that I, I tell sometimes authors that one of my greatest gifts is my ignorance. That is, if they can make me understand what it is they're trying to talk about, then probably they can communicate with just about any of our readers. Each of you most likely has a unique audience. What is that audience? Who is that audience? And what is the uniqueness of your particular journal? Sure, yeah, because I um, had sort of brought that up anyhow. The majority of our readers are clinicians, and many are uh, in hospitals as well as in private practice. So we, I think we are in communication with a lot of people who might not have access to other more academic sources. Charlie, you may be in a similar, in a similar situation with, with your readers as well. Yeah, we know that uh, a lot of our readers are clinicians, but we also have large readership from what we call mission leaders, folks who may not be only involved in ethics or whose primary responsibility is not ethics as much as it is identity, Catholic identity, but clearly ethics is a part of that. We know that ethics committees also use our, our journal for education. 
Right. And Greg, for yourself at the, at the Hastings Center Report. Uh, well, we have uh, a mix, but uh, it's changed a little bit over time. I, I think that it's become... Um, a little bit more of a scholarly journal, frankly, than it used to be when it was founded in 1970. We're now available through the, a Wiley Online Library, and it's uh, it's it's uh, sort of it's. I think it's kind of part of the maturation of bioethics, frankly, as uh, a discipline, a, a field. So we have a lot of we have a lot of scholars in our audience, uh, and uh, in, in addition, we have a handful of of practitioners and institutional leaders, and, and we have just a handful of sort of interested others, as I think of them, uh, including a number of journalists who, who read the, uh, the report. That's a bit of background for our, our listeners. And I'm just thinking of getting into some of the specific issues. Uh, there's no doubt that each of your journals hopes to engage dialogue, but we seem to be in a time over the past number of years when public dialogue conversations are are difficult, especially around more controversial issues, and, and our dialogue can even be more polar, perhaps, now than in the past. How does that kind of climate impact the work that you're trying to do in engaging dialogue over difficult choice issues in bioethics, either at a clinical level or at a policy level? Charlie, I might start with uh, you, if I could. Yeah, I would say that uh, for us, you know, and I, I'm sure that's true for the other editors as well. You know, it's like having only two feet, but you've got to have them in three different worlds. For us, there's the political world, the clinical world, and then we also have the religious world as we're dealing with Catholic leaders who have, because uh, we have a long church tradition and ethics. So we're trying to sort of mediate those three things, and sometimes that gets a little bit difficult. Sure, Greg. Do you experience the same, the same challenges or tensions? Um, probably a little bit differently. I mean, we have, uh, we we try to emphasize um, you know, a diversity of perspectives. I think I, I guess one thing I'd say I'm I'm finding that there's there's ever more emphasis within the articles from the authors on finding ways or thinking about how we talk across our our divides. We had a, a, a special report, uh, a collection of essays in the last year, in the May-June issue of this last year, about public bioethics, how uh, national bioethics commissions and other bodies are doing their work. And this was plainly one of the things that the authors of those essays were wrestling with. Uh, and there was a lot of emphasis on um, respect for diversity and for uh, minority Perspectives, and I think that that is a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a change uh, within the field over uh, over the decades. You know, if I might add a, a word to that, Greg, I think one of the paradoxes we experience is that, well, healthcare ethics is that on the one hand becoming more public. Uh, both because of the political issues and because of media attention, there's also a way in which it's becoming more personal and private yes. because patients and their families are more involved in healthcare decisions than they've ever been in the past. Right, right, right. Yeah, and another another trend that I, I think I'm seeing that sort of touches on this issue and, and connects with what you're saying, Charlie, is an emphasis on... Uh, sort of relational ways of understanding personal autonomy and you know, an emphasis on on shared decision making, on mutual decision making, as a way of bringing in you know different uh, different perspectives, even at the at the bedside. Leslie, how about you at the Journal of Clinical Ethics? I, and and it was probably true for for all of us in healthcare ethics over the past year or two to see the issue immunization uh, would be one that we could point to, which had great diversity of opinion across the country. And it really went into the public sphere of dialogue, whether on CNN or other news shows. And so sometimes that, that conversation can be challenging and we're trying to engage it in a way where we're trying to reach all listeners. Uh, Leslie, do you have the same challenges at your journal that Charlie and, and Greg just discussed? Yes, um, I was very interested in hearing um, how they view it and, and um, how they engage it. For us, we've long uh, tried to not be 
ethics police. And, and when I say that, I'm bringing out something about the journal that probably most readers don't know, which is that we get many, many articles from authors who are very angry and upset about an issue. And they write to us thinking that somehow we're going to expose this terrible wrongdoing. But many times the tone is strident. And so over the years, we have tried very hard to emphasize that we want to be having a conversation. And if you're in a conversation with someone, probably the best thing to do is to be respectful. You know, so we typically, when you talk about polarization, part of our review process has sort of become asking people to be civil if they're not and urging them that they're going to be more able to engage their readers if they're not uh, polarizing and angry. Hmm. And yes, that we're not the ethics police. Um, that is, we don't expose wrongdoing and punish people. In terms of immunization, we've received many articles from people who are not particularly in, interested in, I, I, I'm sorry to be negative, they're not interested in engaging in a conversation. They're interested in proclaiming. Right, right. Is that an answer to your question? Oh, sure, sure. I think uh, as you try to engage and unpack the complexity and the diversity of perspectives on some of these issues, I think just some of those challenges just arise naturally. And trying to engender more, more civil dialogue around them, I think, is probably a goal that, uh, that we all and many have. Well, let's go to the, the focus of our title today, which is paying attention, looking back and looking forward wanting to uh, identify some of the trends you are seeing from your particular seat, either in the area of ethics consultation, ethics education, ethics policy, or ethics research. If you, if you look back over your shoulder over the past year, given the types of topics that your journals have engaged, are you seeing any particular trends over the past year with respect to healthcare ethics? Well, I'm certainly seeing it at the report, uh, this is probably a little bit more than the last year, but I'm certainly seeing a fair amount of interest in this question about the professionalization of the field of clinical ethics and, and uh, whether there needs to be some sort of certification process as the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities has proposed. Uh, but at the same time, I'm getting, I'm getting some uh, pushback. I'm seeing some pushback in, uh, of just the sort uh, Leslie was uh, describing with some concern that in moving toward this kind of certification process that we might be putting clinical ethics consultants in the position of being ethics police in some way and that there needs to be maybe some kind of attention, more attention actually to sort of the, the psychological dynamics of conversations than to uh, sort of trying to figure out what the reigning values are and how they, how they can be applied to cases at hand. Sure. Well, accreditation, competency, professionalism, uh, that's certainly been present. And it's certainly present within health systems as well as they're trying to ensure that people in particular roles and, and in many roles have that kind of competency, including in healthcare ethics. Leslie, are you seeing the same kind of trend at the Journal of Clinical Ethics? Yes, I think over the years we've been seen as sort of the home of um, clinical ethics consultation. And there, as ASBH moves more toward credentialing and professionalization, there's many reasons for that, including like a base level of con competence an agreement about good practice. There uh, is also, it's also very uh, controversial in that there's still not really an agreement, I think, about what clinical ethics consultation should be. As, as Greg mentioned, there's a fear that clinical ethics consultants are going to be um, the, you know, the ethics police, whereas ASBH says, you shouldn't be making recommendations at all. Your gift is education and analysis. And then that, that makes others very un, unhappy to say, well, here I've educated myself on ethical principles. Some people say I try to be a good person. I think I have um, advice to give. So that, that's been a very hot topic for us in the past year is professionalization and credentialing. 
and we've been using the term ASBH uh, standing for the American uh, Society for oh, sorry, Bioethics American and Humanities. American Society for Bioethics and Humanities. Right, which is the professional association or group that has come together to kind of look at some of these issues, especially in accreditation and, and working documents that they've published. Charlie, do you see the same kind of trend within uh, Healthcare Ethics USA, your journal, or, or are you seeing different trends? Well, we haven't had as much writing about it, but I know uh, we have discussed it as ethicists. When I've convened groups of ethicists, the whole issue of credentialing, and we've talked about the ASBH. You know, for us in our situation, we're in a little bit tighter situation. I wouldn't say that that our ethicists do not try to facilitate good ethical decision-making, but we do, again, have these norms and, and moral uh, guidelines which, you know, do place limits. And so sometimes uh, we don't want our ethicists to seem like they're police, but they do have to make clear what the tradition is and where the boundaries are. I'd say the growing edges for us are probably in empowering physicians uh, we really want physician, more physicians to be more involved in the ethical aspects and also in the mission leaders that I referred to earlier. Some of our hospitals, many in fact, don't have a resident full-time ethicist, but they do have a mission leader who is going to be more and more responsible for at least uh, the local scene to uh, be kind of the first responder for many of these ethical dilemmas. So they need to be prepared to do that. Well, uh, still still taking a look at trends in either consultation, education, policy, or research, maybe we'll just go around the circle one more time. We talked about accreditation of uh, ethics committee members, mm-hmm. making sure there's a competency and ability and a knowledge base there in that work. Are there, are there other trends that you are, are seeing over the past year or maybe over the past couple of years? Well, uh, one thing... No, go ahead. Uh, sorry. Well, Charlie, why don't you go ahead first? There's a growing emphasis upon end-of-life issues. Now, that's been true for a long time, but it, you know, there must have been 20 articles uh, published by our three journals just in the last year relating to CPR or palliative sedation or the good death. And I think that then that leads to these issues about surrogate decision makers and the involvement of families as well. They're not totally new issues, but I think because of advances in technology and an increased involvement by families, they've taken on a new life. Yeah, that is, uh, that, that's quite right. One of the dis- uh, distinct <laughs> patterns that I've seen at the report over the last uh, year and <clears throat> really over the last year especially, is a whole uh, raft of stuff on this question about uh, surrogate decision-making. We had a a couple pieces in the January-February 2017 issue and another one in the current issue on the question of what to do with the the difficult surrogate decision-maker, the one who seems to be either unable or uninterested in in, in doing the job, who doesn't actually uh, seem to uh, know the patient's wishes, uh, values very well, or is sort of un, you know uninterested in in making decisions that seem to square with them, and uh, and we've had a handful of pieces uh, trying to figure out ways of delimiting the the surrogate's authority. Uh, there's a the piece in the current issue is arguing that we typically think of the surrogate as having more authority than is really the case when you look at the sort of the ethical foundations of surrogate decision making. Uh, but we've had also uh, a bunch of commentaries that we've published simultaneously on these pieces and the commentaries push back vigorously on this, on this question uh, in favor of, of, uh, you know, of, of relational ways of knowing and, and arguing in fact that the surrogate really does have a kind of right grounded really in the, in the intimacy uh, uh, with the, in the relationship with, with the patient. So that's, that's become, that's, that, I hadn't really seen very much in previous years on, on, sort of on the difficult surrogate decision maker, but I've, I've certainly had a lot of stuff in the last year. Leslie, are you seeing the same kind of trends around end of life care or surrogate decision making in the Journal of Clinical Ethics? 
Well, I'm, I'm thinking with what Greg and Charlie just brought up, that we had a, a sort of an unusual article about dealing with what the authors called incapacitated surrogates. Not just that they're unreasonable, but maybe that they're not competent. And I thought that was really pretty new and interesting. When you have a surrogate that you want to disqualify, not just because, as I said, they're disagreeable, but because the things that they're saying don't make any sense or they're not you know, consistent. Or there are other indications that the person has some very serious mental health problems, for example, and their decision-making for the patient is endangering the patient by any measure. We have had a tremendous emphasis on what people have called unbefriended patients, that a lot of clinical ethics consultants are talking about how the majority of case consultations they see right now are for older patients who don't have anybody to speak for them, you know, like someone living on the street, for example. And, and how to help them, especially since having a, a guardian appointed for someone can take a really very long time. And in some cases, the courts just say, well, a hospital, you deal with it. You find, a, you find someone. So there, there, we've had a number of articles this year about how to work with patients who don't have family, who don't have friends. Something that I read a lot about, although uh, we haven't published increasingly on it this year because we've published consistently, I think, over the years, is the new and changing understanding of brain death, you know, the legal challenges. Um, clinicians especially are very concerned about, well, what if we can't trust the definitions that we've had for so long? Yeah, that's something I... I... We've had sort of an ongoing series over the years, and I'd begun to get a little bit tired of it, if you want to know. Because <laughs> uh, the, the literature, all, all, many of these arguments are very, very, very logically fastidious. Uh, but now, with the Charlie McMath case, I'm, uh, I'm expecting to uh, see a, a wave of material on this. In fact, uh, Bob, Bob Trug, who was involved in that case is working on a, a set of essays for the report coming out sometime mm-hmm. in the in the coming year on uh, sort of new you know new perspectives and and uh, and and varying contrasting perspectives on uh, definition of death issues and so yeah that one that's that that was one of the issues uh, that in the in the history of the Hastings Center, that was the issue that they thought they were going to resolve right up front and sort of get, yeah, it's get, simple, you know, get sorted, and then they could move on to the the you know sort of more practical questions about you know actual sort of bedside decision making. And of course, it's been exactly sort of the opposite. The, we've made a little bit of headway on some of the practical questions, but this seemingly foundational question about uh, what death actually is is just ever more complicated greg if, if yeah, my I memory would... if my memory is correct probably around five years ago the uh the hastings center did a special edition on the challenges of moving forward the questions at the end of life in other words we often feel we see the same questions in clinical cases but it, it really is kind of like the systemic embedded structural components that seem to make these kind of questions continue. And it's it's this deeper complexity, it's this deeper systemic issues that are at play that cause them to stay around for longer than we thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think part of what uh, what's, you know, it's sort of an interesting question about, you know, what the field of bioethics is here. And I think back in, back in the early days of the Hastings Center, there was um, the, uh, there were a number of theologians early on, but it, it quickly became sort of a, a philosophical field, and even even some of some of the key theologians had a fairly philosophical perspective. And there was sort of an it was that kind of perspective that led to the the brain death position, and and it's now with some of these recent cases, it's it's. Uh, and, and with what's uh, being discovered about the, the complexity of what happens to the body when the brain appears to be kaput. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's just getting ever more complicated and, and all these issues are getting opened up all over again. Charlie, I know you were trying to get in there. 
I was just going to agree with all of you that um, how this has come back again when we thought it was settled. I went to a conference a couple months ago on brain death, and I went in there thinking I knew what brain death was. <laughs> and when I left, I thought, I'm not so sure about this anymore. So we are revisiting the whole question. Let's let's turn to the future. We've been we've been looking at the past. Let's take that look forward. Do you anticipate any particular trends uh, emerging in the coming year or coming years that we haven't been paying attention to or perhaps haven't been on our our list? Leslie, how about you? Go ahead first. Oh well, I thought it was so interesting when Greg was talking about a sort of a move from theology to philosophy that. A trend that I see is that, uh, at least with our authors and our readers, that there's increased uh, increased interest in values, let's say, that I think especially with credentialing of uh, clinical ethics consultants, the idea would be that while we respect others' values, that somehow there are certain principles that trump values, let's say, okay? So that um, what I'm seeing more and more is somebody saying, well, um, these are my religious values, and even say in terms of brain death, and that that is, is I'm, tr I'm struggling with the right words. I think that that's getting more respect, shall we say, instead yeah. of saying, well, we're not interested in your own personal little view of the world. We've got some overriding principles uh, and we'll go with that. Thank you. I, I'm seeing uh, much more consideration for uh, religious belief. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Actually, I, I it, it seemed in in the very early days, I think the philosophers uh, sort of ruled the roost a little bit. But it seems to me, if I were to come up with uh, some sort of general trend over the last few decades that there's there's a little bit more emphasis on what I think of as sort of a, a sociological perspective and on narrative ways of thinking about cases um, where narrative is not displacing logic exactly but it's just uh, it's making the logic so very much more complicated we had a, a, a piece, actually one of the most downloaded pieces in the report over the last few years is uh, a piece by Bob Trug at Harvard uh, on microethics. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And his, his uh, well, one of the, the themes in it is that the, what you have to respond to when you're thinking about a case at the bedside is incredibly complex uh, and you can't, uh, it almost tends to exceed, I'm going to overstate it here probably a little bit, but it almost, it, it almost exceeds our, our codes a little bit. Or at any rate, the codes, you know, the reigning principles don't reach into a lot of the stuff within what's going on at bedside, in bedside decision-making that is morally important. You know, uh, things like uh, tone of voice and facial expressions and, uh, you know, exactly how much information to share to whom. And, and, and so, you know, it's not quite that he's just kind of abandoned philosophy, but he's not really seeing philosophy as settling matters anymore. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's more, yeah, it's a more narrativistic sort of sociological understanding of, of, the, of the whole process. My, my sense of uh, looking back and looking forward, I'm, I'm seeing more and more as we look at healthcare ethics issues that we see greater levels of more moral meaning at play or ethical meaning at play. And some of them will come from spiritual or religious traditions. They all come from the actual uh, facts of a particular story. But I find one of the challenges and perhaps the greater complexity is that we are paying more attention to the levels of meaning that are present in these stories that engage many professionals and individuals and patients on many levels. And as we unpack that complexity, uh, we're looking more and more to resources from other places, whether that's philosophy, theology, sociology, or other aspects of human meaning that might shed light on what the interplay there is. 
so my sense is that that, that kind of dialogue is uh, is is going to be there in the future as it has been in our past. Charlie, yeah. Charlie, how about yourself? What do you, what do you see? Uh, yeah, I think I think I agree with that. You know, one of the even within Catholic healthcare, where you know there's obviously a real importance to the theological dimension, I think we're seeing a lot more uh, a lot more patients and doctors invoking that tradition on their own, and sometimes getting into conflict with our ethicists about it. Mm. Um, that didn't usually happen in the past. Sometimes, you know, we've got people who are very, have very strong ideas about something ethically based on their interpretation of our religious tradition, and they'll, you know, really raise their voices and, and object or promote a certain viewpoint. I think closely related to that is also the influence of cultural sensitivity, and I noticed there were a number of articles about that which appeared in these journals as well. And that uh, was something, I think it's part of that narrative move, you know, what is the patient or the family story that's going to affect these presumably objective and rational ethical principles? Uh Yeah. Well, we've kind of taken a look back, and we just took a little look forward. I just want to ask uh, in the current date, is there anything currently that's catching your attention? given the spectrum of issues that come in front of you over a period of time, is there anything that's kind of jumped out? It may be novel, it may be new, or it's just it's just jumping at you in a way that it hasn't before. Are you seeing anything quite like that uh, in your experience? I'll start with you, Greg. Well, I, I think... Well, I should say, sort of by way of preparation for this, that uh, you know the, the Hastings Center report takes a very, very broad view of bioethics. Um, uh, looking, it looks not just at uh, clinical ethical issues, but at health policy issues and uh, research, even uh, animal research, and uh, biotechnology, even even uh, biotechnology as used um, for non-human organisms. Uh, so we had a, a, a piece, a, a special report just recently, uh, the idea of de-extinction uh, for uh, uh, lost lost uh, species, and the, the thought that you might be able to use a combination of genetic and reproductive technologies to bring these back. So anyway, that's all by way of saying that we have a we we cast the net very very widely, and you know may miss some of the details sometimes. But one of the things that we're particularly interested in, and I'm I'm interested in seeing more of in the report, and I'm hoping to get more of is more attention to broader social issues. Now, we've been talking a lot about, you know, sort of the um, clinical decision making in a very intense and personal way, but but at the same time that uh, I think we're that's that's been a distinct trend. Uh, I think that uh, bioethics has a lot of work to do out in society uh, on some topics that uh, it's tended to uh, steer clear of. So we're seeing, we're publishing a little bit more these days on on some public health related issues, um, uh, the ex- experience with undocumented immigrants. There's been some talk in, in some of the journals about you know, bioethics and race, what, what might bioethics as a field have to contribute to the national dialogue on race, which has certainly been amped up over the last few years. And in general, I think sort of uh, uh, cost issues, cost of cost of drugs. I'm, uh, I'm, we're sort of we're interested in seeing more on that, and and maybe even there's more to be done on some other kinds of social issues that have uh, seemed to be part of sort of public public policy or social ethics, but not bioethics per se. Health turns out to have so much more to do with various social determinants than with health care per se. And uh, welfare, uh, human welfare has, uh, has so much to do with various things going on in our communities. We will have a, a set of essays sometime in the next year on aging uh, and welfare at the end of life. And I'm not entirely sure what's going to come out of it. There's, we're going to have a guest editor for it, but I'm I'm in, I'm expecting to see that 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 kind of conversation will bring in a lot about 
communities and health systems that are sort of uh, outside of the what we think of as kind of the, the, the clinical ethics encounter. And it seems to me that there's a lot of work to be done there, and, and I'm, uh, I'm excited about that kind of, that, that sort of trend. Well, certain from, yeah. certainly from a healthcare delivery point of view, with the Accountable Care Act and incentives that were put in place for attention to be paid to social determinants of health and how to address the health of a community, whether you use the term population health or not, those social and systemic structures, also asking if there are any biases inherent within any of those structures, mm -hmm. uh, certainly have gotten a lot of attention. So uh, I think uh, even legislation recently has helped to pay attention to those social determinants of health and how they're structured for a level of equality and dignity for all. Charlie, do you, what, what, what are you seeing? What, are, are you seeing something similar to Greg, something different? Um, one thing that I think is not uh, noticed or at least uh, remarked on enough, but I think it's a huge game changer is big data. And it affects population health. It affects the whole question of diversity and disparity in access and in outcomes. Somebody said to me recently that with the, you know, the, the greater use of electronic medical records, which was also part of the Affordable Care Act, that we are collecting so much data, we don't even know what to do with it at this point. But eventually, that data is going to begin to realize or to reveal more and more correlations and give us information about the real situation we're facing out there on a mega level that I think is going to be dramatically important in how we deliver health care. Hmm. Yeah. Leslie, what are, you, what are you seeing as well, similar to Charlie and Greg or different? Um, I'll, I'll go with different because our, our focus is different. One thing that we're seeing a lot of, although it, it's not new, is a different way of looking at moral distress and in some ways even sort of a uh, quantitative response to moral distress, which maybe sounds kind of wild, but people who are studying it and taking it seriously as a problem and trying to solve it. I remember famously our publisher one time said, look, you know, if you're in healthcare and you're not experiencing moral distress, you're not doing it right because of all of the things that call up moral distress in healthcare. So we're, we're, we're seeing the idea of moral distress as being an organizational ethics issue. That's new for us. Um, thinking about what Charlie and Greg were saying, we've tended to look at, again, a clinical response. So we've done special sections on responses to emergencies, either man-made or um, natural, triaging, the ethics of triaging, uh, the idea of quarantine, uh, but again, much more from a clinical perspective those are the things that come to my mind. Here's something that I, I would I have been sort of watching and expecting to see uh, some treatment of and haven't seen very much about uh, stuff on the the opioid uh, public health crisis. Uh, we've had we've we've published only one item on that in the last year or so. Uh, it's such a massive uh, social issue right now. It seems like there's. <clears throat> got to be stuff to say about it, but I haven't seen all that much yet. Maybe you, others, you, you other, others have. Charlie or Leslie? Well, I'd have to agree with that, given the magnitude of the problem. You're right. Um, and I think we're still figuring out how to frame it in ethical terms. I think that's part of the problem. Yeah. I think it's a social justice issue to a certain extent, in that many of the people are affected are disenfranchised. Or, for heaven's sake, you become, I think, disenfranchised. Right. We used to publish a lot on HIV, and we publish some. We don't publish as much because I think some people feel that ethically that problem has been solved. I mean, as ridiculous as that sounds, but that it's probably a really big problem if you don't have any money. It's a really big problem if you don't have any family to help you. And I think in, in some ways, 
our, our society right now, it's, well, gosh, now I'm going to go off on a tangent and I shouldn't. I think that our society until recently has not been as interested in the problems of the disenfranchised. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair. Yeah. Yes. Sure. Sure. However, one thing with the opioid crisis is that it's made enormous inroads into neighborhoods that never had uh, or at least never talked about drug problems in the past. You know, the uh, influence uh, or the uh, uh, incidence of opiate addiction in suburban neighborhoods um, today. So it's brought it, you know, it's brought that into the picture. So it, is, it isn't just the disenfranchised or the poor anymore. We're talking about upper middle class families who are dealing with it. Well, let's let's uh, change our direction just a little bit from what we anticipate or what we see emerging to a focus of the next generation of those who may be engaged in healthcare ethics issues, either as a healthcare professional, they may be new to that role, as an ethics committee member, they may be new to that role as well, or an educator in an academic or other setting. If you were to offer advice to the next generation of those getting involved in healthcare ethics. Do you have any advice that you would offer, given where you sit? Well, one thing that I would say, you know, as I look toward the future, it seems to me that the biggest question we're going to face is genetics and genomics and epigenetics. And, and it isn't just a question of what we're doing here, you know, the advances that we're making, which are very rapid, and that's an issue in itself, you know, to analyze each of these and its various ethical components. The bigger problem, and one of my colleagues, Kevin Fitzgerald at, at Georgetown University, mentions this frequently, is who owns this information and who owns these new technologies. And uh, his conviction is that we're not, we're not paying enough attention to that, that there are all kinds of things happening in the business world, and many different companies are setting themselves up for what is surely going to be a huge money-making operation in the future. And we're not asking about the proprietary issues of who owns this stuff. And I think that's a really big issue. And it may be too late already. I don't know. <laughs> right. yeah, well, that's a, I, I, I like that answer, Charlie. I, uh, <laughs> this is a tough question, frankly. I, I think, allied to what you're saying, I think there is going to be, there is now a lot more access to information than there is to things you can actually really do usefully do with that information. Uh, and that's going to that's gonna become more dramatic as we see ever more uh, you know, genetic screening and uh, whole genome screening and incidental discovery of results uh, either in the course of research or, or, or perhaps in the course of uh, medical care. And questions about what you do with the information whether to share it if, if, it, if you're a healthcare professional and you, or a researcher and you happen to come across uh, some finding that may have some bearing on the life of, of uh, the person you got the uh, information from, you know, whether to share it, how to share it, what the organizational responsibilities are, uh, what kinds of systems need to be put in place in order to, in order to achieve the sharing. I think there's gonna be a whole lot of questions uh, along these lines. Leslie, I know that you are uh, not just solely in the role of an editor with the Journal of Clinical Ethics, but also uh, an ethics committee member with, with a hospital that you are connected with. Any, any advice, given those two roles that you sit in, that you'd offer to anyone who might be a, a new ethics committee member or someone new to the area of healthcare ethics? I'm always impressed with articles that we're receiving. You had asked about younger authors that they have an assurance about what it is they do that I think is very different than what I saw 20 years ago. I think part of that may be that ASBH and mm -hmm. master's programs and PhD programs have and various immersion programs are training people to do clinical ethics consultation so that, that people feel, feel more credentialed one of the things I see sometimes, though, is that people take very little chunks of what it is that they do. In talking with Charlie and Greg, I'm getting all excited about things that they bring up that I don't see, and I would advise 
new bioethicists to to think much bigger sometimes than what I'm seeing, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. Yeah. Charlie was saying, if I understood him correctly, the, again, social justice implications of EHRs. Right, right. You too, Greg, yeah. was talking about, you know, how that, who owns the information and how it would be used. Yeah. I know you, as our guests, have identified some articles that were published in your journal that you would recommend. Would any of you just want to uh, give a quick point to uh, either of those articles that you might consider would be uh, helpful for people to read? Did you just want to speak on them for a moment? You know, one thing that I would mention is an article by Atul Gwandi, which appeared in the uh, New Yorker recently, uh, on whether healthcare is a right. And he went back to his the town he grew up in and talked to people about it. And that article really gave me some insight into how people understand fairness and justice and the whole idea of rights. And it helped me to see why there is so much resistance to, you know, some of the proposals for universal coverage. So I'd, I'd encourage uh, uh, folks to take a look at that. Thanks, Charlie. Leslie or, or Greg, any others? Well, I was going to uh, suggest some of the, the pieces that uh, I was talking about earlier about surrogate decision-making from the um, current issue, January, February 2018, and, and also a couple pieces from the January, February 2017 issue. And there's one that maybe for this, uh, our, our audience right now might be particularly interesting. It's, it's called After the DNR, Surrogates Who Persist in Requesting CPR. Uh, by Ellen Robinson and others at Mass General. They put in in place a policy to try to support doctors who had made a decision that a, a patient should have a DNR even though the patient's surrogate felt otherwise and maybe continued to feel otherwise. It's an interesting article and there's an, uh, an interesting uh, uh, set of commentaries on it because it, it raises this question about uh, how far how far the doctors need to go in actually overruling surrogates and what the organizational system uh, might look like for doing so. Leslie, anything that you uh, you would like to point to? Um, we're, we're sort of different in that we don't have a, a large range of articles that are available to people who aren't subscribers. So I feel kind of badly saying, oh, definitely read this because it might not be available to everyone. What we have done, though, is we've made available articles by our editor-in-chief who writes an essay at the beginning of every issue discussing themes um, throughout the issue and introducing his own analysis. So um, those are things, those are articles that people attending the podcast can access a final question to our guests. What are you seeing in the areas of artificial intelligence and human trafficking? Well, those are, we haven't published anything on, I'm trying to think if we've published anything on human trafficking lately. I haven't, there, we have had some, there's been a lot of talk about AI this is one of the cases in which the Hastings Center has got this very broad view of bioethics, and we actually are, are doing a little bit of work on on AI, even outside the range of of uh, healthcare. But one of the one of the questions about uh, that 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 comes up within within healthcare about AI is is the idea of uh, using robots as a, as sort of companion, the support of people needing care, maybe especially people at the end of life. This is something that um, Japan is kind of leading the way on, as I understand it. It's still kind of just around the bend, I think. It's something that I, I expect to see see some discussion of, but I, honestly, I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't think I've seen seen much about it yet. Charlie or Leslie, anything you'd want to add on either of those two topics? Well, the human trafficking thing, you know, is an important issue for us. I think most hospitals are training their personnel to notice signs or markers of, of trafficking, and it's a place where health care and justice 
really intersect. And uh, I guess it's becoming, I think people are aware, at least I'm aware, that it's a much bigger problem than I ever would have imagined. Yeah, that's true. Just for our listeners, we just wanted to alert you as well that our October episode of 2017, available on our website, uh, spoke specifically to human trafficking. And and the statistics are quite... Uh, Horrifying. Well, yeah, not only that, but the ability of healthcare professionals, especially in the ER, to be able to identify patients, yeah. it, it's quite remarkable the number of persons who are trafficked have contact with healthcare professionals in an ER was one of the points that was uh, identified there. But, but Les Leslie, from you as well, any, any um, thoughts or comments on, uh, on the two topics of human trafficking or artificial intelligence? Um, I had seen some of the, I think maybe the same sessions that Greg is talking about in terms of AI, with the idea of robots assisting at the end of life. And, and um, we had invited an article, but it, it didn't appear the concerns were healthcare providers who um, maybe were uh, uh, less credentialed. That is, they felt that they would be supplanted. We have looked back, looked forward, naming trends like end-of-life care, surrogate decision-making, and the social determinants of health. Appreciation to our guests and listeners for their great contributions today. Thanks, everyone. I'm Kevin Murphy. And this is Ethics Lab. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again. Yeah.